where is everybody? Your name is Lila? Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should look at the plastic part. It's just a, you know, a, a suggestion. The paper? <laughs> probably not good for you. I think it's probably not, not very tasty. Well, anyway, I can still use my tongue to, to get the pieces of taffy out of my teeth. That's true. Yeah, that's part of taffy is a gift that keeps on giving throughout, throughout the day. So you brush your teeth. <laughs> and floss. Mm-hmm. And floss. That's right. The taffy is soft in my teeth. I know. That's kind of what it's known for. When we were kids, did we even know what floss was? Hello, Dean. I, I don't think I did. I think uh, I think we I used it. My mother was super super. I so, this is Dean. So Mary's what? <laughs> He's not that scary. He's really not that scary. And we're done. <laughs> All right, I have 10.30, so let's go ahead and get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise read them, Uh, Hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast promised us in thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, friends, uh, I'm glad to be with you all today for this study of the Psalms. Um, Today, we have before our view um, primarily Psalm 9, although... Uh, when we get to Psalm 9, we uh, run into a problem that um, is uh, a feature of the kind of editing conventions of the Psalter. That is that in, a, in the Greek, um, in, the, in the sort of the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we know as the Septuagint, the LXX, this is um, a, a psalm that is, um, that, is more, that is combined together into one, has a different kind of numbering convention than in the older Hebrew manuscript which divides it into two. And so, uh, but, and so for reasons that we, uh, we will we'll talk about here, I'm going to turn this air just up a little bit. We successfully cleared the room down. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> it, was, it was not very comfortable in here earlier. Uh, for reasons that we'll, we'll discuss, there are, that you, we have to read these psalms together. Um, these psalms, uh, they, they, uh, they thematically connect to each other. They inform one another. And it's occasionally the case with the Psalter that you really can't understand one psalm without paying reference to another. Um, one of the reasons for this, um, in the way that the psalms are compiled, is that the psalms are a collection of um, religious poetry that get written over about a thousand-year period of time. Uh, and, so, and as a result of that, they, they form a kind of um, literary convention within the culture of ancient Israel. Um, a feature of this, the nearest kind of thing we have to something like this in the West, in the Western literary tradition, is something like the sonnet. Um, the sonnet gets invented around like 1215 um, in southern Italy. It is wildly popular in Western Europe, and pretty soon the French are doing sonnets, the British are doing sonnets, the Portuguese are doing sonnets, the Belgians are doing sonnets, the Germans are doing sonnets, everyone's doing sonnets. And it becomes this interesting thing because... Um, the sonnet becomes a, a form uh, of, of, of writing. It becomes a form of writing in which there are rules, um, but those rules kind of get adapted as the, as the convention sort of ages and as it gets passed from generation to generation. And the point of that tradition is that each, each prior generation's, uh, uh, you know, some of the more famous things that come out of each generation get brought into the next one. And so each new generation of psalmists uh, are going to be writing using some of the kind of phrases um, of prior psalmists um, as a way of talking to each other between the psalms. And so the psalms is an interesting book because while each of these psalms is its own kind of poetic creation, um, it's engaging in a tradition, a very popular, very um, entrenched cultural tradition, so that 
um, these psalms talk to each other a lot. And a lot of times we, the prayer book, when they appoint psalms, has a knowledge of this. And so we'll put psalms together that naturally converse with one another in one way or another. You say that a lot. In, yeah, when, when, when we do morning, yeah, when I do my meditations yeah, at evening yeah. prayer. And this is, this is just one of the ways that the Psalter invites us into a kind of meditation on the psalms. Lala, come back to your chair. And so Psalm 9 and 10 are easier in this way. Sometimes the natural relationships between the Psalms is a little bit more ambiguous. It's more obscure. It takes longer time to kind of see how these things relate and talk to each other. 9 and 10, it follows um, a very popular um, style of writing Psalms that develops very early in the Psalm tradition, and that is the acrostic tradition. Um, an acrostic, of course, is um, the literary device where we see um, the, the first words of each new line of a piece of literature have a kind of intentional lettering to them so that either it spells out a word as you go down the side of the page, um, and then each new sentence sort of pops out with a, with a new sentence that begins with that letter, so that you know, if you're writing a love poem to someone, it can say, like, I love you down the margin of the page, and then each new line, or like the name of someone, and then each new line has its own. It's called an acrostic. Yeah, an acrostic. So very early in the psalm tradition, we get, this, um, we get this pattern that develops that becomes very popular through the whole psalm tradition. And what happens is, is that it's a way of taking, it's a, it's a memory device acrostic. And the way that it works is that um, they'll take the Hebrew alphabet and they'll write a psalm begin with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so as we go down, the, as we go down the line here, um, then we'll, we'll go ahead and, and, we'll, and we'll see like each new one uh, begins with that next letter. And one of the ways that, one of the reasons why this is done is, is as a memory device. It helps people to memorize this poetry, right? Uh, Lila right now, for example, is memorizing Bible verses uh, and is doing a series of them that each one new verse begins with a new letter of the alphabet. And so this is a way we begin to commit things to memory by having that kind of, that preloaded kind of alphabet order in our head so that we can kind of go down the line there. And so the reason why scholars believe that 9 and 10 were originally supposed to be read together is because 9 ends roughly halfway through the Hebrew alphabet, and then 10 begins with the letter that it left off at. And so it's, it's, it's almost certainly the case that these two were originally one composition that later got split up into two different psalms. So that's why we're going to read them both together today. But we have to also observe that there's a reason for why they were split up as well. That it's not just um, like, it wasn't just like, oh, we ran out of space on the parchment and so we decided <laughs> to start a new scroll over here. It's going to be significant for us to, Lila, come back to your chair. Thank you. And read your book. Come over here. That's not the time to crawl down. Thank you. We're going to observe that um, at times two psalms are set next to each other as a way of kind of a call and response to each other, or that one of them will establish a setting in which the next one takes place, or talks about a problem that the next one will solve, or even does it in reverse order, that the first one will talk about a solution, and then the second one will talk about a problem that the solution is the, is the answer to. And so there's all kinds of ways that this happens, like in a sonnet, which typically sets up in the first uh, eight lines of it, the problem, a question, a, a situation, a scenario, um, and then the last six lines of the poem resolve that problem. And then it's somehow elegantly summarized in the final couplet of the, of the sonnet, right? The whole problem and solution is succinctly summarized in the end. You'll find similar patterns to that in the Psalms uh, the more we read them, that there is this kind of habit of starting with a problem and then working our way through a meditation on something that happened before in order to answer what we should do in the current moment or in the future or what we should expect in the future. And what this does is it trains us by reading them this way and observing their movements. It trains us in a way of thinking about the work of God and thinking about the character of God. And so as we do this, um, the psalm is actually forming our expectation and forming our imagination. And imagination is important uh, to, for every Christian to form because it's where all our thoughts about the truths of God and the truths of the world actually come into a place where we put them together and say, what's going to plausibly happen to me and to my world next? 
And so the Psalms are the largest book in the Bible because they're the great formator of imaginations, of our theological imaginations. And so what we see, the pictures we see develop here are meant to kind of occupy our imaginative space so that when we ask, what is it like most likely for God to do? We have already some architecture in, in the heart, in that imaginative space that helps us to then anticipate the likeliest thing to happen. And so the more we read and form ourselves in the Psalms, the more we can expect, ah, God has been faithful, so I should um, exercise fortitude behind the hope that God will be faithful in my own time. This is why the psalmist will continue like lead us through this kind of process. And we'll see that on display here in 9 and 10. So with those preliminary kind of notes in place, are there any questions on any of that? Yeah, Cheryl. Well, I just, when you were just saying that just now, I remembered when I was in Turkey around Ephesus and all those areas, we went to all these ancient churches, but one of them had a sign and it was, it was the Greek people, but it was like, because it used to be Greece or something, I don't know, but you have to go to these plays. Mm-hmm. Your every citizen is re- required. Like I remember right. reading that because just like what you were just saying, it's like they see the psychology of people acting out towards each other and what happens in mm-hmm. the plays, just like our till we have faces or right. whatever. It's just like so you learn not to do that, not to do this, to do that, blah blah blah. Oh. It's so cool that yeah. that you just said that about how God is training us in these songs. Have this theological insight, see, so that we don't have to act all these foolish things out in our lives. <laughs> right. We don't have to invent them. Yeah. We have yeah. a, and, and, it, and it's, it's significant that the poet, that poetry plays such a significant role in the scriptures mm-hmm. because poetry is that, is the formator of the imagination. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that takes us beyond the literal and allows us a perspective on, from which we can actually meditate on the literal. So there's the facts of our life, but the facts are just points of data, right? The thing we're always looking for is the thing that connects them, the meaning of them. And the meaning making is not something that the facts alone can tell us. It requires a perspective beyond the facts in order to reflect on all the facts, right? It's like if you were one point on a connect the dot page in a children's workbook, right? You would understand the point that came before you the point that came after you, right? It takes the perspective of the child looking at the whole page and maybe even the parent over their shoulder to kind of say, ah, I can start to perceive the connection between these things and see what they make, what picture they make together when all the dots are connected in the right way. And that's what the Psalms kind of give us in terms of our, our ability to, uh, to apprehend the truths of God and his world and our place in it. It affords us that metaphorical training that allows us to rise above the mere facts of life and the mere facts of theology and all the and like in for for Israelites their own law and the way that it works out um, and it allows us that kind of meta perspective right from which to see these things as they are and put the pieces together and that's important because if something doesn't do that for us another thing will we're very we're you know we're, we're left it we leave it to haphazard art. Um, poetry, these sort of, these are the sorts of things that are important to be aware, the kind that we constantly imbibe, because they're always forming our expectations and, the, and our meaning-making engine in our, in our souls, right? So if we imbibe a constant stream of, like, Greek tragedy, for example, we can expect the gods to be arbitrary and the gods to visit us with punishment, whether or not we had any say in the matter or not, simply on a whim. And that will begin to shape how we live our life in the world, right? Lila, no touching that that table. Thank you. And so, can I just say amen to that? <laughs> amen. <laughs> and, so, and so, we want to make sure we have Christian imaginations, right? And that there's such a thing as a sub-Christian imagination, um, and and we can inadvertently adopt one and be and, and and have one, and it will make it confusing for us to approach the things of the faith if we're approaching it with a sub-Christian imagination, because even if doctrinally we're, we're informed, right? We've been catechized correctly. That catechesis must then, you know, sort of make its way into the plausibility structures by which we navigate life in the world. And if they don't, then we'll always have that dissonance there. We'll always have a spot where we say, um, I think and believe one thing, but I act completely differently 
because how it works its way into what I ought to do with my life, it, there's a disconnect there. There's an inadequate mechanism for translating those truths into this is what I'm going to do now. So that's why we, that's one of the reasons why we read the Psalms. And we'll see why, particularly in 9 and 10 today, how this begins to shape and help our imagination. So let's read them. Um, I'm going to read out of the Book of Common Prayers, uh, the Coverdale Psalter, um, from, from uh, verse, uh, chapter 9, or uh, Psalm 9. I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will speak of all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. Yea, my songs will I make of thy name, O thou most highest. While mine enemies are driven back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou art set in the throne that judgest right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen and destroyed the ungodly. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, thy destructions are come to a perpetual end. Even as the cities which thou hast destroyed, whose memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath also prepared his seat for judgment, for he shall judge the world in righteousness and minister true judgment unto the people. The Lord also will be a defense for the oppressed, even a refuge in due time of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast never failed them that seek thee. O praise the Lord which dwelleth in Zion, show the people of his doings. For when he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them and forgetteth not the complaint of the poor. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider the trouble which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show all thy praises within the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made, in the same net which they hid privily is their foot taken. The Lord is known to execute judgment. The ungodly is trapped in the work of his own hands. The wicked shall be turned to destruction, and all the people that forget God. For the poor shall not always be forgotten. The patient abiding of the meek shall not perish forever. Up, Lord, and let not man have the upper hand. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the heathen may know themselves to be but men. Okay, so we read the whole thing because it gives us a, a sense of the sweep of the whole psalm. But now we're going to go back and start at the first verse again. And what I would like us to do is, um, again, we're, we're going to focus in on the forming, the forming of these imaginative you know, structures, right? And taking a look at the, the way the journey the psalm takes us on here. So as we start to read, I want us to take note for when something seems to shift or change, okay? So uh, Psalm 9 begins with, I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will speak of all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. Yea, my songs will I make of thy name, O thou most highest. While my enemies are driven back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. Now let's focus in on that word while. Okay, while suggests simultaneity, that two events are happening at the same time here. So what two events are happening here? The, the praise and, and, the, and, the, and God's just action toward the enemy, right? That's right. So these things are, we're setting up a, a scenario in which two things are happening in simultaneity. So we have to see that as the setting, the way we enter into the rest of the psalm. Because these two things are going to be taking place together. Right? So, while my enemies are driven back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. Right? So the presence of the Lord is invoked here in verse 3. So the presence of the Lord explains now why in verse 1 we're giving thanks to the Lord. Because the Lord is near, he is present, so that the psalmist may turn and thank him with his words, right? He's not envisioned as being afar and out of reach or in, out of communication. 
Instead, he is near. And that's something we have to take with us through the rest of the psalm, is the nearness of God. The nearness of God is what everything else is predicated on here, because it's going to explain the foolishness of the wicked as the psalmist goes on to explain it, but also the confidence that the psalmist can have in the Lord hearing his cause. All right. So, and this is going to be put into some concrete geographical images as we go along. But for right now, we just have this sense of the Lord is close. The psalmist sees the Lord such that he is turned and oriented towards the Lord. Meanwhile, at the same time, the enemies of the psalmist in their plots are being driven back. The presence of the Lord is foiling their attempts to harm the psalmist. So we have to keep this in mind because this isn't just like, I'm going to talk about one thing at a time in sequence. Already in the beginning of the psalm, we're setting up a kind of complex scenario here. Three different kind of agents are at work here. God, who has drawn near, the psalmist who is regarding God and relating properly in worship to God, and then the enemy who is trying to harm the psalmist while all this is happening and trying to intrude upon and disrupt that encounter that the psalmist is having with God. All right? So let's keep that in mind. That's the picture we're going to need to hold in our head, and it will help us understand all the different things that are then going to be unfolded from that image. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou art set in the throne that judgest right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen and destroyed the ungodly. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. Let's lean in a little bit closer as to what God is doing here, because that's our next point of meditation. God is enthroned here. So we're looking now no longer is it just a vague presence, but we have the enthroned presence of God. And that throne also signifies justice here, too. That from that throne, a just a pronouncement is being made, a sentence is being declared here. So a different translation. Yeah, what does your you, say? Would you just point out where you are? Yeah, I'm in uh, verse 4 right here. Four. Yeah. Yeah, in the biblical one, which has a slightly different verse numbering than the prayer book because it includes that initial uh, like title, subtitle as a, its own oh. verse. Uh, so let's look at that one. And Nine, right here. Well, it's, it's, it, God has already done right. this now. I mean, God has already shown his just judgment. Exactly. He has declared this from his throne, and now these things are unfolding. Right. So we're at the end of verse 6 right here, if you're looking at the King James or the, any other translation in the biblical, the biblical setting of this. All right. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment, and he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in righteousness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Now, this is significant because now we get a new kind of orientation of the agents of this psalm. Right. So we have at the kind of the, the primary orientation is the Lord seated upon his throne, which we get like three verses here describing like the enthronement and the meaning of that enthronement. It is that the Lord has prepared his throne for judgment, that he is seated upon it now. And it has two effects. From that throne, he speaks pronouncement and what happens? It does. But what happens? Two things actually happen. Of the, wicked. the wicked are driven away into oblivion. And he promises to do more. But and also what is happening at the Peter. same time. Yes. What is happening at the same oh. time. It's not just that the wicked are driven into oblivion so that their name is even forgotten. He's administering justice. He is, but that has a twofold horizon to it. Yeah, so he is judging wickedness, but then he is also doing what? Rewarding. He is rewarding and offering shelter for the righteous. That's enough. Thank you. And so as we go through this, remember, let's situate the psalmist and any who, who seek to kind of identify with the righteous psalmist as sort of situated in the middle here. The Lord is enthroned before the eyes of the psalmist. The psalmist is there and then is being sort of was previously and is still, it seems, being harassed by by his enemies. But 
as he is fixing his eyes on the enthroned God, what is happening? That God is pronouncing judgment and what's happening behind the psalmist in this kind of spatial situation. Right. So is the psalmist turning around and being like, knock it off, guys. Leave me alone. I got to pray right now. He is just praying. And in that prayer, what is happening? He is being drawn closer into a place of solace, even while the enemies are being driven further back. And it's not exactly clear in the spatial logic here how, which one is primary. Because what we know is, is that the nearness is being made nearer between the psalmist and God. And the distance between the psalmist and his enemy is being increased, just as that enemy is also far from God, because God is nearer to the one who throws himself on his mercy, right? Which is the psalmist in this case. So observe that, because that's a great theological imaginative moment right there. What is happening when we pray? Right. God is drawing near, or he is also drawing us near to him. Right. Right. But again, at some point, like it doesn't matter because that nearness is just being made nearer. Right. Right. And we do get the sense in the psalm that God is also drawing near. But it's almost like as God draws near, we get drawn near as well. No one is just static here. There is this nearness that is reflexive in the psalm. Both parties are being drawn closer to each other in that prayer. And wicked are going right. So is it clear that they're, you know, being driven back or are they just stuck in their thing? And because this nearness, uh, this, this movement of nearness is happening for them, for the, the righteous and the, uh, the righteous in God, that distance, that distance has to increase with that place of the wicked where they're stuck and their stuckness is going to be emphasized at least two more times in this psalm as we continue it. So the Lord will also be a refuge. Also in this case is not an afterthought. Although sometimes in English conventions of, of syntax and grammar, we think of the word also as like, oh, and by the way, uh, in addition to uh, that. But again, we're talking about simultaneity here. So that while and this also are all suggesting that these things are all happening in one motion. And this is something that's significant for us to think about with God's action, how we imagine God acting. We sometimes think of God being like, okay, um, I got a big to-do list today, guys, and now I'm going to uh, tackle item A and then item B. And if I have time today, we're going to get down to item F, um, and we're going to keep moving down this to-do list. No, God works in simultaneity. One of the functions of his omnipresence and his omnipotence is that he is simultaneous to all moments in time. So let that sink in for a second, which means that he is relating to the righteous in the same action that he is relating to the wicked. But the effect of that is the complete opposite. But God's work is not divided. He is simply acting, and all of these things happen in that action. We observe his action in terms of like sequences of things, which makes the psalm kind of difficult to read because this, because the psalm, we have to read it in sequence, right? Mm -hmm. We're not really, uh, poetry gets us the closest we're capable of, of understanding things happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. But when we read it, we're having to read one word after another here phonetically, right? Mm -hmm. I can't read all like 200 words of this psalm at, at one time and just say, understand, <laughs> you know, and zap it into, into our consciousness here. Although that's kind of how what wisdom and understanding of this psalm would actually be. It'd be so rehearsed that it happens almost simultaneously for us. That we don't understand like, oh no, right now I'm getting, I'm getting attacked. Oh no, right now I'm being delivered. It, we, the more we, we read the psalm, like the more we experience God in prayer, the more we realize that it's all one thing. I have one undivided life in God. And the effect of that life I observe sequentially in like A, B, C order. But the point is not, is not that God is not restrained to that A, B, C order. He doesn't have to settle one thing, then the next thing, then the next thing. He just, it's all one work for him. Right? So there's an irony a little bit to the fact that this psalm is arranged acrostically that we can begin to perceive, right? Again, acrostically is literally the alphabet along the side, right? A, we're going, going, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Daleth, right? We're going to go down the line here. 
right? But there's an irony to this fact that while we're observing these things sequentially, they're happening simultaneously. And that's the thing we have to meditate on, right? That's where we have to sit and be like, how is that possible? Can I ask you a question? Yeah, constant. So, so th this is really, this is so good. But do you, do you suppose that the psalmist was really conscious of this while he was writing this? Do I do. I, I do, okay. actually, because the Psalms are, are evidence. If I, reading it as, like, you know, again, throwing on my English teacher brain, right? Um, like, reading the Psalms is to read an incredibly sophisticated poetic tradition that is older and kind of blows away the, the maximal sophistication of anything we have, like, in English, for example. The English language, as we know it now, is only, like, 600 years old. Right? The, the Hebrew, the advanced, like, poetic Hebrew that makes this kind of poetry possible was already in place for at least that long before they even started the Psalter. Which means that this thing is about three or four times the sophisticated advancement of language than we even have in English. So take Shakespearean sonnets, for example, and then say this is maybe at least from a purely literary perspective like three or four times more advanced than that in terms of just what's possible with the language. And that's why they're kind of tough to read sometimes because they just, there's so much more um, like kind of like meaning, meaning conveying power in a language as it's continually developed over time. And it actually took hundreds of years before English even was capable of even translating the Psalms. What we have in the Coverdale Psalter is still to this day one of the best attempts at it. But any anyone like that, like you go and read like Robert Alter's uh, like his translation of the Psalms, and like numerously in the footnotes of it, he'll say like, "All right, there's just no English idiom for this, hmm. so we render it as closely as we can, but there's still a distance there because English just isn't maybe old enough yet. You know, it isn't old enough to talk about these things. So that that's you know that's that. that but yes, I would say that yes, the psalmist is likely aware of that because we see things that are at least equivalently complex in other languages that don't have the benefit of divine inspiration behind them too. Um, and this one, no, this one has, uh, it's, it's you throw in the, the inspiration of the whole, of the spirit of God behind this. And you're, 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 you're capable of a, of a massively complex poetic tradition, right? That spans a thousand years. So, as we as we reflect on that, very likely, yeah, very likely these things are, are, are being very deliberately done. Because, again, the idea is to form the imagination. Um, and the imagination has to be able to comprehend things happening simultaneously, even if we have a hard time doing that. But we right. don't know it yet right. with our language. Right. It's really difficult for us to describe two things happening at the same time right. without talking about them in sequence. The Matrix movie is like the only way I'm knowing right now. Right. So right now, I, like I could describe, you know, what's going on with each person in this room. I could make a a poetic description of everybody sitting at the table and online here. Right. And that's one way of saying it. But in reality, all these are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so I, even if I were to describe it, I would already be sort of um, distorting it. Because it would suggest to you a kind of sequential order, like, oh, why did he start with, you know, Cheryl over here and then move to Vicky and maybe, you know, and then skip back over here, you know, and that's, and, and so it'd be like, ah, it would distort the picture of the thing, even to just try to put it into language. And that's, that's a, that's a strange truth, but it's kind of unavoidable for the human mind too. So the Psalms are, are fascinating in this way. And, and already we're seeing in one half of one Psalm, how our paradigm has already shifted as we've meditated on it. And that's the devotional purpose of the Psalter is to grow our imagination for what God's doing and what God can do. So let's move forward. Verse 10 in the biblical version here. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee for thou Lord has not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord, which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he make inqu maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. All right. So 
significant thing happening here. Um, Zion is a word that gets used a lot in the poetic tradition of the Old Testament and also in the broader prophetic tradition of the, New, of the Old Testament. Uh, has Bishop Scarlet talked to you about what Zion means in the Psalter? Okay, like in the prophets, it's a similar thing, and it's helpful to kind of clear, clarify something. Uh, the prophet, uh, Zion, is a kind of um, a future, um, a, a hopeful future image of what the temple will be in the middle of, as like the sort of the heart of, the, of, of Israel, the heart of the land, the people settled in the land. Zion is the hill um, within the city of Jerusalem on which the temple is situated. But it's not quite how it is at the time the psalmist is writing about it, and certainly not at the time the prophets will write about it. Zion um, is an image of the temple working as it's supposed to work, which it almost never did. Certainly isn't now. Right, and certainly isn't now, right, yeah, for, for many reasons. But this, this, this location, which is where God authorized King David to lay out and set apart a plot of land for the temple to be built, and then later Solomon built the temple on top of it, mm -hmm. right? This spot um, is the, was seen to be the seat of God in the world, right? This is the place where the, 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 the dwelling presence of God could be sought and known, Right? But also it was it immediately shown a, a very problematic light on everything happening around it because the operations of the temple were being performed by people who, who kind of constantly committed errors too. And this is a problem. So it, it always meant that even though the temple was supposed to be the mirror of heaven on earth, it was an imperfect mirror like all mirrors are. It was slightly off. It reflected that light to a great extent, but always imperfectly. It couldn't quite capture the image of heaven itself. So Zion is an aspiration in the poetry and the prophets. It, and in the prophets, it becomes, uh, by the word of the Lord, it becomes a promise made to the people that I myself will make Zion what it's supposed to be. I will make that temple mount where I can be sought, a place where I actually am known in a way that's not um, twisted or distorted or confused by all the ways that you have taken that space and misused it. And so as we look at that, we're looking at the temple space, right, that at times had idols in the midst of it, that at times was, you know, was desecrated by the enemies of the people, that at times kings did things that they ought not to have done in the middle of, where sacrifices were misperformed, were missed entirely, were just neglected for a time, the law wasn't read. And God says, I, will, I, my, I myself will govern the operation of the temple. And it, Zion will be what it was always meant to be. So that's Zion, okay? There is another phrase we'll see later on, as we'll go on to read it, that you should keep in track because it relates directly to this. It's called the daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion, at, towards the end of the psalm, is Jerusalem, the city around Zion. And so Jerusalem was always supposed to be the image of a, of, a, of a city that was ordered by the temple at its center. So that the worship of God then emanates out into a just ordering of society. Where people observe the law they were given, where they regard their neighbor with charity, where they do, uh, unto the, they, they do justice for the oppressed, where they welcome the foreigner and are hospitable to them, that that person may pass through their midst and come to know the living God at the center. This, of course, goes back to Abraham and to the promise God made to Abraham. Not only will I bless you and settle you in this land, but also through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Right? This was supposed to be the place, the, the point of concentration where everyone could come and come to know the true God. But Jerusalem, of course, like the prophets will tell us and the Psalms will also tell us, always had problems just because the temple always had problems. With a temple that, you know, it's like if you have a wheel where the axle is slightly bent, that wheel is going to rotate on a janky kind of angle and rattle. That's Jerusalem around the temple is because that was not upright, because that was not made well, the city could never be what the city was intended to be. And as a result of that, the kingdom couldn't be what it was intended to be. And as a result of that, the cosmos couldn't be what it was intended to be. Everything was thrown off by that, that crooked axle at the center. Is that because of the fall of man? 
It was. It highlights the problem, right? Because it highlights that even though everything has been provided for Israel to be this sacred people with a sacred vocation, there is still a problem with the heart that has not been healed. And as a result of that, they'll take all this wonderful provision, all of the things that have been given and made for them, and it will still fall into misuse or disuse because the person who's performing it has not yet been healed in the inmost place. And this is why the Psalter will lead us towards that, because eventually these outward problems really are ways of revealing the inward problem. And until that inward problem is healed, the outward things cannot be healed. So, so we are Zion and Christ. So all these things are, are, an, are an image of that. Yeah. So think of then the heart, right, as the temple space, yeah. right, of the person, right, around which all of their soul, right, the, the, is the, sort of the daughter of Zion. And then, of course, the kingdom is their members, right, their hands and feet and words and, and, and actions, right, the things that are enacted. But if that heart has been marred, that heart is distorted, then everything that comes forth out of it is going to bear the character of that distortion and that brokenness. So, as we move forward, we see in verse 12 there, when he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. That should throw us back immediately to Genesis 4. Okay, The Psalms constantly meditate on the Torah. And so this one is throwing us back to four. When God maketh an inquisition for blood. In Genesis 4, how did God make an inquisition for blood? Whose blood? Cain and Abel. Exactly. Right? Where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is, like, already Abel's blood calls out to me from the ground. And this curses Cain's life. And so this is the image here. It goes back to that, that first murder. Right, the first time that brother is turned on brother. And when and this is at the center of the psalm here, which is starting to be suggestive of this problem that you know that we're going to see beset the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, which is going to be judged eventually because it it, it continually refuses to do the justice that the covenant demands between neighbors, between brother and brother in Israel. Hmm. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me, thou that liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. So think about this as the, um, as the spatial, again, that spatial image kind of repeated again from the beginning, right? And sometimes it's helpful to see it, so I'll, I'll just illustrate it really quick. So again, we have Zion. Right? The Mount Zion, right, where God lives. And then we have the daughter of Zion, which is, you know, encompassed by the gates. So we have all the, we have sort of all the houses here, all the buildings of Jerusalem down here, leading up to the Temple Mount, right? And then at the gate of the daughter of Zion, the gate of Jerusalem, is where he is positioning himself, contrasted with down here, the gates of death. And so the wicked are seen as sort of the like the, a force that is emanating from the gates of death, trying to drag the psalmist away from, again, the gates of Zion that leads all the way up to the place where they can meet God. And so this is where the psalmist is describing himself, is situated in this midpoint between the gates of Zion, which lead to the holy place, is in the midst of the city, and is in the place where everyone in the city gathers for pronouncements of justice and for royal decrees to be made and for pronouncements of judgment to be made. They always talk about at the gates. Yes. This is the benefit of reading Kings, right? Everything mm-hmm. happens at the gate, yeah. right? Yeah. This is where, you know, the king is has a seat in order to give justice to those who come to the city gates. This is why Absalom goes and, like, and, yeah, and yeah, takes yeah, the seat starts and starts diverting yeah. people away from King David. Daddy, you haven't drawn the crowd. I know. I haven't drawn the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> They're all in their houses right now. 
Then how can he explain himself when 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 he's outside and they're inside? It's a great question because actually the psalmist is actually explaining himself to God at the height of Mount Zion up there. And his enemies are coming out from the gates of death to try and drag him towards the gates of death. But the psalmist is, is depicting this as God has, God has drawn near from his seat or has pronounced from his seat in a way in the place where justice is pronounced, the city gates, that the wicked have been judged. Because the psalmist has thrown himself on the mercy of God at the heart of the city. And now those wicked have been driven back to the gates of death. And for the rest of the psalm, we'll see that the unfolding of that action here. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. Pit, in this case, um, is, a, is a translation of shale. Someone fell in a pit? Yeah, it's a big pit. Yeah. Then he gets spit from the top and then someone dies? That's what, that's what death is seen as, is as a big pit. Shale is seen as the place of the dead. Uh, the pit is a um, poetic, uh, a, a sort of a poetic synonym for shale, always in the Psalter. When I go down, lest I go down into the pit, the pit is shale. Shale is just where the dead go. Um, and this is what this is the the idea of death. Death in, is this in this idea is to be is to be hidden away in a pit, right? It's to be buried. Uh, and so death is not really at this point in the in the Psalms is not really referring to a particularly negative place. It's just referring to an, an inevitable place, right? Um, everybody goes to Sheol in the Old Testament imagination. There's no image of like going of like going to heaven when you die until Jesus Christ. You start to get prefigurings of it in the apocryphal literature in the in intertestamental period, but um, before that, I mean, it's just yeah, we, we go down the, we go down to the pit, you know, um, we we are we are dead. And so when Christ descends into when we say in the creed he descends into hell, this is what we this is the imagination of the creed is that he like every person like every true man when he dies goes to the place of the dead, but being the God man proclaims to those in the pit who he is and then leads a bunch of them out in triumphal procession and destroys the power of death to bind them in his resurrection. You mean the bones connect together and it makes a big fireball and they all get dead again? No, it doesn't make a big fireball, but when Jesus speaks a word, all the bones that got scattered get put together yeah. again. That's like when we read in Ezekiel 37 mm -hmm. on Easter Eve. You know, when he says, son of man, shall these bones live? I don't need to worry yeah. about it. I've already read that song. You have. Yeah. <laughs> you're already up in the Acts of the Apostles right now in your kid's Bible. So I understand this is old news for you. Yeah. So this is the thing is that at the pronouncement of God, these, these enemies of the psalmist, of the psalmist who has thrown himself on the mercy of God, are now immediately affiliated with death and are now being driven back to their place. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higayan Salah. Higayan Salah is an untranslatable musical term. Um, there's a lot of theories as to what it means, but it likely, likely, and I'm saying likely with a big asterisk next to it, the likeliest explanation I've ever encountered about this is that it's like, a build, it's like a crescendo term, um, as we would understand it in music. Like, build this up, give it a, a like, pause. Salah usually means, like, a poetic break. Like, and then it, the, most commentators I've read say Higeon here means, like, build the momentum towards this. Like, we're about to crescendo. It's like that final couplet of the sonnet, right? We're about to kind of, like, synthesize the whole thing here. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Again, shale. They'll be turned into it. Not only... Spatially, right? They're going to be turned back from the city, the, the, the gates of the daughter of Zion, and driven back into the gates of the pit. But also, there's this idea that they're going to be like consumed by it, assimilated into it, and lost within it. They are turned into it as well. There's this kind of dual image there. Unsalvageable. Yeah, they're unsalvageable, they're irretrievable from it. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, 
that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Salah. And so this is the final prayer. It begins in a prayer and ends in prayer. And all these things that are unfolded are happening within the prayer that the psalmist is continually offering while being oriented toward God. And so this is an image of, again, an imagination, imagination, right? Imagination building exercise. What's happening when we pray? When the psalmist prays in Psalm 9, he's participating in all of this activity in the way that, that, a, that a human being is called to through their prayer. For them to pray in the spirit before God, this is what happens. They are, it is like they are participating in the work of judging the whole world. But all they're doing is throwing themselves on the mercy of God. And so the question is, yeah, what do we do when we, ask, when we say, Lord, have mercy upon us? Lila, put your feet down. Thank you. When we say, Lord, have mercy upon us, what are we doing? This. Yeah. We're participating in the ordering, the right ordering of the whole creation. Okay. So let that assimilate. Psalm 10. This one, we're going to take the setting we just developed, and we're going we're gonna to put the pieces together now in a kind of, um, in a kind of interior um, question that we'll ask. We start to ask this question. So this is the kind of the big cosmic picture in, in Psalm 9. And as we pivot now into Psalm 10, this is all going, we're going to like, we're going to enter that space of the heart of the psalmist to ask this deep question of the heart in light of everything we've already seen in nine. So let's see what we can make of it with all of this as our context. The question is a very relatable one. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in, their, in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He'll never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it. For thou beholdest mischief and spite to requite it with thy hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil men. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. To judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. Okay, so this is an interior meditation in light of all this. Because even though we get in Psalm 9 the big picture of how reality is put together, and that the psalmist, as the upright Israelite, is, stands in the gate awaiting the pronouncement of judgment from the king on top of Zion, to come to him and, as a result, drive out and ex exile from the city all those who have aligned themselves with the kingdom of death which is opposed to God. So the psalmist is in this middle place, but now we're going to turn inward and ask that deep question of the heart, because even though we can know this, it does not always seem like this. 
And this introduces a new degree of imagination to this, that we can know something is the case, and yet because it so strongly seems not to be the case, we can doubt it. And so this puts us in the posture of someone that says, okay, um, so if you are reigning on high and you have already made Zion your throne, then why even in the city, right, and the villages on the outskirts, is this allowed to happen? Why can the wicked get so close? Do you, and, they, and why are they allowed to say within their heart, none of this is real? Because if it were, we wouldn't be allowed to do this. And this is a question, ultimately, of why does God forbear? That we ask, right? Why does God forbear? Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Because this is the question we start with most often. The most immediate question we'll ask is, why is God gone from this? By the end of it, we know that God is not, in fact, gone. And Psalm 10 leads us through this meditation where we take an honest look at the problem of the wicked. We go through multiple verses, at least 10 verses, of describing why they're a problem and what they're doing is a problem. But yet, we're still led out of that. Through that honest meditation on the problem, we begin to start seeing the solution. That even though we started off asking, why is God so far away? we realize that the, there's an illusion around that separation. That although God seems to be far away, this is not in fact the case, because God is near to those who put their trust in his mercy. And so there's an illusion of separation here that we are led to confront, that God is not in fact far away, but he is watchful. He is watching. And this reveals the ironic foolishness of the wicked in the midst of the city saying, ah, well, if God cared about it, he'd do something about it, right? So he must not care about it. And this is a disastrous, tragic logic that they have mistaken forbearance and the opportunity to repent for license to continue doing evil. And so are subjecting themselves to the judgment that inevitably comes, as we remember from, from Psalm 9 that judgment is going to be pronounced. And in the space between the moment it, it, when these things are happening and the moment that judgment is pronounced is this space of forbearance where there's an opportunity to turn and be received by the mercy of God or to continue becoming more and more the agent of hell, the agent of Sheol. And when the judgment comes, instantly drives them and assimilates them into oblivion. Just amazes me that, that, I mean, okay, if it's all a bunch of bull, mm -hmm. we've wasted some time. Mm -hmm. But if it's not, eternity is. Yeah, the, the consequences of it being right. real are. That's what like Pascal's wager. It is, right? Yeah. So he said, I've been on that side of it. The good. Waste your time doing a Bible study then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. The like again, you lose nothing in the end if all of this is false. But if That's it is right. true and you've neglected it, the consequences are in, are are inexpressible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the thing here though, is that there is this space of meditation, forbearance, the world of seeming. And so the Psalms are incredibly psychologically um, sophisticated in this way. Because it draws attention not just to the assertion of cosmic reality, which is true. This is how reality is shaped. Being expressed through the local kind of the localisms of, of ancient Israel. But this is ultimately the shape of reality, as we profess in the sequence on Easter Sunday, right? Death and life have contended in combat stupendous. The king of life reigns immortal. Right? This is the thing that is happening behind all other things. But in our, in our immediate context, we are living in a world of seeming, right? Where what is is not always what appears to be. And there lies the trial of the human life, that what can seem like divine neglect may actually be divine forbearance. And what seems like God giving his imprimatur to something evil 
is actually a patient waiting with the hope that someone will turn. And so the only safe way, as the psalmist continual, will con- the psalms will continually reinforce for us, the only secure way through life is to receive the word of the Lord and the law for them, the terms of the covenant, and in the new covenant we share in Christ, and to focus on that. The only secure way through the kind of the shape of the cosmos here, the only place you want to be, is the psalmist turned toward God in prayer. Everything else is raging around him. And his eyes are fixed on God on the top of Zion, awaiting the pronouncement. And that's an accurate picture of where we're called to be as well. We, we're not the ones who are going to solve the mystery of death. We're not the ones who are going to personally conquer the agents of Sheol. We are standing in the gate. We're in the midst of a city that has not yet been made well. But our eyes are fixed on high. We have looked up. We have seen God. And we have begun to commune with him in prayer, drawing nearer as he draws nearer. We are drawn nearer as he's drawn nearer. We draw nearer. And so to be fixed in that pattern of life, of looking up and drawing near and being drawn near, the rest of this is going to to happen. Our place is to stay there. And so that's where we're at. That's where we're at at the end of 10 there. We've looked at the cosmic picture of all things and then a deep mystery of the heart that perplexes us, even if we know that. And the Psalms are sophisticated again in this way. They know that we can have just read Psalm 9 and still ask the question of Psalm 10 a breath later. This is why we read them together. And this is also the wisdom of their separation. Because we can be like, ah, yes, I have seen the glory at the end of nine. And then immediately say, but why isn't God here in my thing? And that is the trial of the heart. Mm-hmm. So that's our time for today, friends. Uh, let me pray for us. And then let's uh, close up shop. Let us pray. The Lord bless us and keep us and make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. It's Thank good to be you. with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Wonderful to share Thank the online space with you. I keep thinking of that hymn we all sang when we were Lila's age. For though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet, right? That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. But obviously, we're more fortunate now because we have Christ and He's way back when they didn't. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, we have again. We have been met with the the new life at the at the place of the heart that can actually uh, lead us to begin to experience now life as it is meant to be. Um, It was an anticipation in the Psalms. They were anticipating what Christ would do and figuring it. But then these things would come to pass. They, they, they historically came to pass as Christ did his work. And so, yeah, he stood at the gate of the city, right? As both the person who was harried by the enemies and also the person who pronounced the judgment over them, the God man, right? He was God with us. And also one who suffered at the hands of the agents of Sheol, right? Which had become many at that point, right? And where did Jesus die? Right outside the gate of the city there. Mm-hmm. In this place, the psalmist situates himself in nine. But weren't the Pharisees and the scribes? They yes. had occupied the, Zion, the place of Zion. And that's the irony of why Jesus goes up to the temple and judges it and say, this is not a house of prayer. This is a den of thieves, Right. And then from then he leaves that temple and the work happens right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You read the gospels with this kind of like picture of reality in your mind. It's like, Whoa, Jesus is right where he wants to be at all times doing a thing in that spot for a very good reason. It's amazing to think about that with this kind of like this kind of this picture in your head. Well, yeah. there's also some verse, Jesus said something about when you pray, mm-hmm. pray as if that thing has already happened. 
And so this totally gives me perspective and helps me understand what that means because mm -hmm. you're praying knowing the justice of God. Yes. So you're praying already seeing, oh, I know it goes to Z, A to Z. I know the end of